invite you to turn to James 2 this morning, and as you turn there, I want to weigh in on the overall theme, overall name of our series that we're going through, and that is the idea of faith being activated. We've covered it much in our study guides, but I don't know if I've directly made mention it in these words, faith being activated. We're going to hit it very uh, thoroughly at the end of James 2. But even in the names I've been calling these sermons, we've, we've seen meaning and understanding of what activated faith looks like. Um, the first sermon was called Survivor, True Faith Survives Trials. Uh, the next sermon was called Just Ask. A simple faith knows we can ask God when we need wisdom. Or a humble soul, a genuine faith is humble before God, not boasting in us, but boasting in how God has saved us. A true faith owns when it has sinned, and it owns what it means to be a Christian wholeheartedly. Faith in Christ means we can calm down as Christians, knowing that Christ is in control and saves us, and the world does not end every time a world leader does something to get on our nerves. And faith activated means we're doers. The idea of active faith doing is the key to hearing, as Dean preached last Sunday. Today, we will talk about what can kill an activated faith. Uh, we talk about perhaps a sin in particular, yes, but a foundational incompatibility of faith. A faith killer. That should really cause us to listen intently. So please do so as you stand in honor for hearing the word of God today. I invite you to stand as we read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we never come to your holy word, and not give it the respect it's due. 
but rather that we would know that you have delivered this to us through your Spirit. Father, you have spoken, and we know all of creation obeys your word, but we don't, not all the time. Father, would you give us the grace and the power to receive and do what you are telling us to do? Father, would you remind us that it is with love that you speak to us and that it is for our good? Father, would you use this to transform our hearts and our lives that we might draw closer to you? But only you can accomplish that. So Holy Spirit, have your way in our lives. Get me out of the way. Say what it is that you desire. I pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing I notice in any vacation, in this past vacation, is primarily two things. First, I'm accustomed to life on the hill. <laughs> and second, I am not a city person. <laughs> And, well, see, relatively speaking to Christy, I'm a city person. I grew up in Kamei. <laughs> but the primary issue that connects these two things are people. I'm accustomed to life on the hill. I'm not a city person. Lots and lots of people. Whether it be people on the plane or people in the public transit in Atlanta whenever I'm really tired, traveling back from my missed plane flight, I begin to realize my own sins and what we're talking about here today. When I see people on their phone and doing what they can to not talk to other people and being content, quite literally, to be left to their own devices, <laughs> consumed with what fancies them. You know, I have been studying for this sermon that Monday as I took off. I knew I was going to be on the plane. I wasn't tired, so I just thought I'm going to use this plane flight and study and maybe prepare for my sermon. But I was thinking about this passage on my own, my whole vacation, and one question that I kept asking myself is, do I really want everybody to be saved? <laughs> do I really want everybody to be saved? Who would I approach? Now, some of you think, since I'm a pastor, I have this amazing tendency and just this amazing ability to take a Bible and hit any stranger in the head with it and try to convert them. I'm not that way. I'm very introverted. Who would I approach if I had the audacity and the passion and if I didn't have the inhibitions to my own personality? Who would I pick to speak, to speak about Jesus with first? And why would I pick them? One thing I do know is that I've been praying for a very few people for a very long time, converts, that they might be converted. Family members, neighbors that John and I prayed for at prayer meeting and that I mention often in my own prayers, this is good. We should pray to see converts. But are there, I don't know, Middle Eastern people? Or people that look like gangsters? Or are there angry white people in crowds? Or men dressed like women? Or vice versa? That we might pass over. People we might already... Be in, be in our lives, but, but we never, it never strikes us to pray for them. That if we're truly honest, we pay as much attention, as much thought and prayers to them as we can muster, which is really no attention, no thought, no prayers. And is it so much that we think that they won't be saved, 
or that we don't care if they are saved, which are two vastly different things. James starts off, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The NASB says it this way, which may make things a bit clearer for you. It says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The idea is that it is incompatible to be a respecter of persons, to play favorites, to prefer one person over the other, and then to claim to also have faith in Christ. We see right out of the gate that this is a faith killer, a big issue, not something to just shrug off. Why is this incompatible? I believe it is found in the rather unique title that James throws in here. I don't know about you, but I just felt like the Lord of Glory just jumped out at me like, that came out of nowhere, why would you refer to Jesus that way? I think James is introducing the reason why partiality and favoritism is a problem. See, glory means to reflect, to be bright, to have weight. In Christ, Jesus reflects God, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He reflects God. We are also made in God's image. Genesis 1 tells us a reflection of him. Isaiah 43 tells us we are made to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What happens when we begin to show favoritism? One of two things can happen concerning glory. A, we are inadvertently saying that God's image is not present or is present in a lesser manner in the person that we are overlooking. Or B, and or B, we are glorifying the person we are choosing over the other. Either one of those sins are weighty sins. We're disagreeing with God Almighty in His creation, and we're breaking the commandment of who we ought to worship. James puts it in an illustration for us in verses 2 through 4. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? From the outset, it seems that James is using the idea of material wealth here being the primary means that perhaps his recipients are showing partiality. Right? You, you put more in the offering plate, sit right here, and uh, why you don't even put pennies in here, take the floor next to all the stinky feet. But I want to key into specific words that James uses that also can paint for us a different way, a way that I wonder James was subliminally warning against. I want you to note the words fine and shabby. Fine, sometimes the word is translated as bright or shiny. And I want you to see this exact word in other contexts. Most of us, I hope, know the story of, of Cornelius, a Gentile a convert, one of the first Gentile converts that Acts tells us about, and an angel appeared to, and he says, Cornelius, call for this guy. Paul, Paul's going to come and talk to you, and you're going to get saved. That sort of thing. That's a very butchered paraphrase. But Acts chapter 10, verse 30, we read, 
And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright, that is our word for fine, clothing. How about in Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 6, we read, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright, that's our word, fine, linen with golden sashes around their chests. Isn't it interesting that in other places this word is used is to speak of angelic, pure, and undefiled beings? How about the word shabby? If you're still in James and you go back to chapter 1, verse 21, we read a verse that uh, I ended on two weeks ago, which says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That word filthiness is the same root word of the original word which speaks this word shabby. The point, it, it paints a slightly different picture for me. See, James is likely talking about favoritism when it comes to richly, nicely dressed people versus raggy, homeless people. But also sometimes it has that picture for us, the saints, versus, you know, those well-known sinners. Some of us, don't raise your hand, <laughs> but have you ever had those people who walk into the church, Rebel, <laughs> and you say, wow, I'm glad they're here. I hope they become a Christian. They seem like nice people. But then there are those other people. What are they doing here? I'm keeping my eye on them. And really, if you would be honest with yourselves, the sooner they get out, the better. That just means trouble. Favoritism. Where is the mind of God in those moments? Do we not hear ourselves? Because what we're really saying is the image of God is obviously in that person's fine clothes, upstanding citizen, all he needs to do is get saved. And then when it comes to the ratty clothes, well-known track record, history, bad deeds, no image of God I can discern. Not as important. God must have made them on a day he was half asleep if he was directly involved. That sort of thing. Man, many of you are getting to know your pastor today. <laughs> this person looks good as a poster boy for Christians. I really want them to be a Christian. Well, this person's been in and out of prison. Not much hope for them. Bad company, corrupt, good character. Goodbye. And God says, I made them both. I want them both. I sent my son for them both. I died for them both. I offer redemption for them both. I love them all. I want all to come to repentance. Don't give me this. He's halfway there. just needs to accept Christ. And for him, it's hopeless. Garbage. Right? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Do you hear that? <laughs> James is talking to Christians. Judges with evil thoughts. Have you not become the servant who was forgiven of a $100,000 debt and suddenly you feel entitled? Right? We get the chip on our shoulders. We start thinking, God, I'm a recruiter now. I'm going to recruit the Christians I know you want. Hey, you sinner, look at your outstanding debt of $20. Don't you come around here. I know God wants who he wants, and it's not you. And our debt was forgiven by God. Why do we not think God will not forgive others? We are judges with evil thoughts. Who are we to even think we can judge rightly who will and who will not come to Christ? 
But then James says something that seems to flip the argument upside down from James's first illustration. Verse 5 through 7, James says, Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, have not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In reading this, it would seem like, seem like James is saying, hey, don't play favorites. Besides, God favors the poor people anyways, so stop favoring those rich people. And so, in other words, this almost sounds like James could be saying, stop favoring rich people, you hypocrites. God's no respecter of persons except the poor, so favor the poor. Like it's a double standard. Like it wasn't a matter of favoritism, but more of a matter of having the right favorites. But on closer look, it's not what James is saying. Two things that James is saying in verses 5 through 7. He's pointing out primarily why not considering the poor is incompatible with the God we have faith to be saved in. And then pointing out a historical, contemporary thing you didn't think of sort of thing to draw his audience away from their greedy prejudices of wanting to pamper the rich. So yes, he's using self-interest to help them be righteous. So first, the not considering the poor is incompatible with God that we have faith to be saved in. See, does God consider the poor? God is no respecter of persons, but we cannot deny the Bible has a lot to say about his saving the poor. We heard what he thought about the poor earlier from Sharon, Deuteronomy 15, 1-11. I'll just point out verse 4. He says, There will be no poor among you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. When Jesus, or uh, Mary sings of Jesus in her womb, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And when Jesus starts his ministry, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah in his hometown of Nazareth, and we hear him say in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says in his Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. God has a heart for the poor. Why? Does he show favorites? Or could it be that Jesus knows our hearts? Right? He knows the human condition, and let's be honest, psychology studies even show rich people and poor people think differently. The rich people goes away sad because he has to give away all he has, all that he's worked hard for, but the poor sometimes are in such a vicious cycle that they find it hard to believe that their lot will ever improve. But rich people, like Zacchaeus, can be convicted of sin and can give generously and does come to Jesus, realizing he is spiritually poor. Meanwhile, the poor are affirmed from the get-go and told that the kingdom of God has broken to the world for them. And King Jesus has come for the poor, lest anyone think that riches or wealth or social economic condition is the reason for their salvation. Only God saves, and he makes that well known by saving the most unlikely folks in the world's eyes. The rich man is humiliated to realize how poor they really are before they know their king, and the poor man is exalted, 
realizing that the kingdom is for them. We talked about this in another sermon. So the reality is, is that Jesus is for all people. And by definition, all people certainly encompass the poor. So when church people go, rich men, fine suits, they would look good in our church directory. But then they look to the poor man in ratty clothes and a rap sheet and say, You Christian? You kidding me? James asks in verse 5, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, God died for all people. His offer of salvation is for all people. He has shown a special ministry and emphasis to the poor, and so are not the poor part of his divine plan. For those who love him, does he not promise salvation? Why would we ever be judges of certain hearts and deny people opportunities to love the Lord? Who made us judge? Who made us counselor, critic, and administrator of God's plan of salvation? And who saved but then James goes further. Firstly, he talked about the simple fact that God's gift of salvation is for all, and God himself is no respecter of persons, not impartial. So it's incompatible and actually illogical to just favor some. Secondly, though, James takes it to a situation that was happening in their time. And he says in verses 6 and 7, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In the first century, much like we can see at times today, this is a heavy, hard test question, so good luck. If a rich man and a poor man were dragged to court, guess who's winning? In that day, if a maligned Christian, maligned by the Jewish aristocracy who owned the cornerstone in all things religion in Palestine, or maybe a, a pagan Roman person who oppresses the Israelites already, if a Christian and one of those are dragged to court, maybe with a jealous Jewish person who wanted a Christian's land and came up with a reason why he thought he needed it and found the right lawyers because they had the money, guess who's winning? James, as I've reminded you from time to time, is kind of a wisdom literature motif, so sometimes he speaks in generalizations. So he's kind of saying this way, besides, why do you want rich people so much? Do you not see that it is generally the rich person who rips you off, takes advantage of you? Don't they, supposedly upstanding Jews who serve Yahweh, don't those rich ones rip you off and still claim to be upstanding servers of God? Therefore they blaspheme his name. I have a friend who's a good preacher, a great preacher, great teacher. I really love his teachings and I get a lot of good out of them. Um, he's around my age. One day he sent me a link to a website. I followed the link to the, the website. The website told me, stay tuned, this website will be up. It's currently under construction. And so I asked this guy, is this the right link? Oh, it is, he tells me. I bought the website domain, right? He bought the address. It's www.whateverwordsechose.com. And he, brought, he bought one of those, and he tells me, I'm going to load up all my commentary notes and teachings and study notes and so forth. And at first reaction, I wondered, because this is where I watch myself in this area. I told my friend from the get-go, I'm only telling you this, buddy, because I personally struggle here. We live in a world of celebrity pastors, right? We have our favorite pastors. We read their books. We study their notes. We love their teachings. And eventually, some of us start paying money to their ministries because 
We think it's a worthwhile ministry. We want their teachings to be on the ears of other people, other people to benefit like we have. But how often have those people grew big heads in the process? Not everyone, but it seems safe to say, generally speaking, how often have those celebrity ministers suddenly started misusing the money, started enjoying the the fame and the notoriety, and suddenly names like Jimmy Swagger or the term TV evangelist becomes synonymous with infamy? And my caution to this man who never pastored nor has ever ordained or approached, been approached for a full-time ministry was, I don't think you're in sin, and if you set up the website tomorrow, I don't think you'll be sinning. But be wary of the temptation to want to be a celebrity pastor. It's something I tell myself often. James is telling his listeners, are you favoring the people who are going to rip you off? Do you want them so much, but will it be to your detriment? Not as a means to say that the rich are lost with no or diminished hope of salvation, but as a means to say, favoring the rich carries with it its potential downfalls. Favoring celebrity pastors, in my illustration, carries with it the day where you might wonder where your years of money have gone. Suddenly, if you hear of a moral failure or misuse of money, something of the like. James continues, If you really fulfill the loyal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. As if James is not being vivid enough, right? He, you're carrying a fundamental incompatibility with your faith if you're playing favorites. You're ignoring the reality that God is impartial. You're taking away value from any person and stating that God did not make that person in his image when you malign some and favor others. You're judges with evil thoughts. But now he reminds us of who Jesus is to us if we're Christian. And I find that it's often uncomfortable for some of us to express it or vocalize it. See, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, do you hear the subtle conviction of that? He's in essence saying, if you call yourself a Christian, and it reminds us of what being a Christian is, and that it involves a royal law, and if we have a royal law, it means we have royalty, a sovereign, We do. He is King Jesus. King Jesus, James is saying, if Jesus is really your king, your king has made it clear that the apex of loyalty in the law is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then look at how it's ended. I am the Lord. You know what that means? That means God says, I'm the sovereign, (laughs) this is what I demand, this is what I want. Now it's not a hard rule, it's not a bad rule, love people, dang it, really? And he says it in a way to his subjects, to his people, so that when people like me, Pastor Kevin, whenever we say things like, but God they did, (laughs) but God they do, and God they practice, and God the chances are slim, they'll repent, and God, meanwhile, King Jesus, our God and Savior, The Lord of glory is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. (laughs) Not you. I am the Lord. Dean mentioned it last week. 
Jesus is asked, our king is asked as he is ministering in the flesh on the earth in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. If I can generalize where I believe churches foul up and Christians foul up, most often as I see it, that is not practicing both of these in communion and in intensity. Because Jesus is not making any distinctions of priority here. He is saying that to love, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love people as you love yourself. It goes with what James will say here in a minute. To break one law, you break them all. It goes with the logical incompatibility of being a Christian while simultaneously showing partiality or favoritism. Many churches might think, many Christians might think that we're very good at loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we don't smoke and don't chew and don't go with friends who do. Because many of you didn't catch that. Come on. I know it's long term. We don't go with the world. We don't follow fads and trends. We're all about piety and godliness. And we read our Bibles daily. And we don't know cultural references because we're not part of that world. And at the same time, we start thinking that there are sinners and saints. And we forget that sinners become saints. We start putting up walls, emphasizing one of what should be of these equal royal laws. Notice Jesus says on these Two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. Not just one. Not just on the first and the second to a lesser degree. They are inseparable. John spends an entire letter teaching that. I can pull out from 1 John 2, 9-11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To be fair, the opposite happens, too, with these two commandments. See, depending on where you or I err, we will be quick to see where the opposite errs. And I err what I just explained because I'm a great religious person. I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and we'll all get to the people later. That's how I am. <laughs> Christians, or would-be Christians, might compromise on godliness, truth, holiness, and the name of compassion and witness, and say anything to get you into the church. And then they see discipleship as a dirty little secret we try to hide. Well, we don't need to cover what Christ says about our culture. We can be really relevant, and we can fudge a little on what Christ says about this or that, because he's for everyone. How about this novel idea? How about we do what King Jesus said? Love God and don't back down on loving God, but also love people and don't back down on loving people. Love all people like God wants you to love all people. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You hear that? See, God always cause us to overcome our sins, not just live with it. <laughs> I just explained how churches or Christians can easily emphasize one over the other, and the idea is not just say, okay, 
Let's live with it. We'll just reach everybody we can for Christ in our own idiosyncratic ways. Or we can strive in our own life and in our local church by God's grace to fulfill the royal law our king has given. Because our king came to earth to die, resurrect us, and lead us to do so. We can strive by God's grace to love God wholeheartedly, to be uncompromising on his truth. But we can also strive to be uncompromising in our love of other people. To not say, I really want these people to be saved, and so my effort will be on these people. I really don't care, to be honest, about those people. Hey, if they go unreached, and if they're not prayed for, and if they're unserved, well, it happens. It happens by compromised believers who are guilty of breaking the law. <laughs> now, God does place on our hearts certain people at certain times, sure, but may we never pass over fruit ripe for the harvest. May we never turn down someone who shows up at our door in need of being ministered to, but because we know their past and we know who they are, we doubt their sincerity that we suddenly become judges and show favoritism. Does that make sense? God might place on Paul to be a minister primarily to the Gentiles, but it's not as if Paul were to say, you're a Jew and not in need of my ministry. God might lay on pastors' hearts to pastor particular groups of people, but I thank God for pastors like Kelly Lineberry, who though he has a church, he's contributed to our study guides. He's able and willing to handle me personally. I go to him a lot for ministering. I want you to hear the difference between God-given tasks to ministers on certain people never makes room for favoritism. Favoritism is prejudice and partiality. It's to deny ministering people because you're judging them. In fact, James sees partiality as this particular breaking of the law, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Two things I, I note here. First, we see it's an obvious illustration. Kind of like I just said, the idea is not to be content to say, well, I struggle with favoritism, but I'm really good at sound doctrine, <laughs> or I'm really good with keeping faith simple or whatever. See, whenever you're taken to judge to a judge for a speeding ticket and they say, hey, you're guilty of doing 50, or 100 in a 55, you never respond with, but I didn't rob a bank. <laughs> right? You're guilty of breaking the law. You're guilty of doing what the lawgiver told you not to do. Second thing I see is that I don't believe uh, James picked these two commandments arbitrarily out of thin air. The bride of Christ are to be saved. So though we might not commit adultery, that is, though we might not be completely guilty of serving other gods or committing adultery with God, showing favoritism is nevertheless murder. To diminish the sanctity and value of someone and say, this person first, I really want this person to be saved, and if you scrape in and get ministered to and get saved, more power to you, but I'm more focused on this person too. It's in essence to say you're dead to me. I want this person over here. I'd actually be happier if you just left. That's, that's to say the value of your life, the eternal destiny, whether you're saved or not, is of no concern to me. Murder. Murder by negligence. They need salvation. You and I know who to point them to, and we don't. They need love, and you and I are commanded by King Jesus, the, the royal lawgiver, to love them, and we don't. Rather just kill them? Well, James, you're overthinking it, we might want to say. Or is it that we just don't take our faith seriously? Is it that 
living life subject to King Jesus is different than what we thought we did whenever we accepted him in the first place. Isn't that when we call Jesus Lord and Savior, we really like to emphasize that Savior part and less the Lord part. That's basically what James is implying when he states, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Translation, are you a Christian? Talk like it, act like it. Do you take faith seriously? Is Jesus not just your Savior, your ticket ride to heaven, your band-aid, your one purchase? Now I have it in the closet or on my shelf. But is also Jesus your Lord, whom you know as Lord, as sovereign, as royal king, as the judge? One of the biggest and hardest struggles of partiality that the first church overcame was the favoritism of Jews over Gentiles. The Jewish people believing that they were preeminently the chosen people of God and that God was not saving anybody else had to be overcome. We talked about Cornelius briefly earlier, and after Cornelius told Peter about he being visited by an angel of the Lord, what did Peter say? Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, what we're talking about. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now listen to this. God dies for the sins of the world, but now we also hear from Peter, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Jesus Christ is the judge. Jesus, the Christ, who commands people to love God and love people, will judge us for these things. Well, yeah, he'll judge us based on whether we believe in him or not. How do you define the word believe? Belief or, or faith or trust in Christ means what Dean preached last week. We do what we hear, right? If I told you I'll pick you up at your house at 7 p.m. and you say, I believe you, but then you went and made other arrangements, and at 7 p.m. I showed up and only find that you had another ride, what would I say? Why didn't you believe me? Oh, I did. Well, your actions proved otherwise. If you had responded in belief, I would have found you waiting at your house at 7 p.m. whenever I arrived. I believe you are Christ the Lord. As Christ and Lord, I demand that you love God and love others. I believe you. Then are you doing it? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What debt have you been forgiven of? And are you showing that same forgiveness and same mercy to others? You see, it comes full circle. We worship Jesus, the Lord of glory, Jesus who perfectly reflects God, and we are to perfectly reflect God. And you know what God is? An unending forgiver. A strong Lover, a merciful Savior. And so if we are to speak and to act as one who is to be judged under the law of liberty, 
under the law of Christ. Christ is the, the other manifestation of God's righteousness. Paul says in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are to receive his righteousness to atone for our sins, but also we receive his righteousness in that our character, his character is being made manifest in us. Does that make sense? That means we, too, are to be unending forgivers. Our debt was forgiven. We forgive others. This means that partiality on account of, I know what you did, and though I say I forgive you, I don't have to like you, I don't have to minister to you, then have you even forgiven them? Point being, we are to love strong. Love people into the kingdom. Love all people. Be generous with your love. Love like God loves. Love like a person who's willing to die, not just for a good person, but for a sinner. Love like Christ loves. We're to be merciful. Because if we accept the mercy of God only to lord over other people, I wonder if we've truly experienced, truly received, truly understood the mercy of God. I wonder if we truly know how evil we are. Because if we don't, we certainly aren't overwhelmed with how much God loves us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One last thought. Because of the time I live in and the struggles the churches are facing culturally, I've slowly and sadly come to inadvertently hate the word love. <laughs> and as I've mentioned earlier, I struggle with perhaps thinking that I have to love God down and loving others less so. Because the world in the church has turned that word love into something that's wimpy. It's to define the word love really as tolerance without limit, acceptance without virtue, conviction, or integrity. I know something else that tolerates and accepts without virtue, conviction, or integrity. It's called nothing. Mercy never triumphed over judgment empowered by nothing. The love that God gives you through the cross, through his spirit, as Jesus says, you love one another as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We need to have a biblical definition of love. And if we have the love for one another that mirrors the love God has for us, that means love is strong. Love is furious. Love is jealous. Love is redemptive. Love is proactive. Love confronts evil and bathes it in good. Love hates sin and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Love is merciful and forgiving, keeping no records of wrong, but certainly never enables more wrong. Love propels people into holiness. Love expresses itself by being willing to suffer with and for one another. This is the love, this is the mercy that triumphs over evil and overcomes the world. Amen? That's a love that I can love. I don't know about you, but the world's definition of love taints the very idea of mercy triumphing over judgment. Have a biblical, God-centered, Christ-reflective, spirit-empowered love for all people. And you will see that even the most apparent lost causes can be saved by Christ's love, grace, and power. So love strong. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're honest, we never thought we would sin in this way. At least I'll speak for myself. But Father, if we have discovered that 
we are playing favorites, if we are partial, that you would show us that right at the core of who you are and what you've done for us, we have gone terribly astray. Father, you, you thought about me on the cross. Your love was given to me. And sometimes we're quick to, to realize how maybe how bad of a sinner we are, but well, that person's worse. That's not the case. Father, would you help us to have this love for one another that we would be willing to minister to any and every person that we come across, whether it be through these doors, whether it be at the grocery store, whether it be our neighbors. Father, would you help us to not be partial and show favorites. Father, would you help us to have your eyes and your heart and your love directed towards them that's merciful, forgiving, and gracious. Not that we would compromise on truth, but also let us not compromise on the love that we should have for one another. We thank you for that. Father, would you be with us today as we go out these doors, would we take these words with us? Would you do heart surgery on our hearts and lives? Would you help us to repent, not just hear, and then go away and not do what we've been told? But rather that we would truly believe you, truly respond to you, and that faith comes by hearing, but also hearing is doing. Pray these things in Jesus' name.